Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and recommend. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you love to read, please consider joining my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month, one where I talk about the next month's most anticipated books and one where I chat with an independent bookseller, all about their store and the books that they recommend. In addition, I host a monthly early read where members have advanced access via NetGalley to a digital copy of a book, and then we meet on Zoom with the author pre-publication to chat about that book. January's book is The Sweet Spot by Amy Popel, and for February there are two. Lauren Willig's new book, Two Wars and a Wedding, and a debut by Lee Abramson called A Likely Story. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Allison Richman and Shauna Edwards about The Thread Collectors. Allison is the USA Today bestselling and number one international bestselling author of several historical novels, including The Velvet Hours, The Garden of Letters, and The Lost Wife, which is currently in development for a major motion picture. Allison graduated from Wellesley College with a degree in art history and Japanese studies. She lives on Long Island with her husband and two children, where she is currently at work on her next novel. Shauna has a BA in literature from Harvard College and a JD from NYU School of Law. A former corporate lawyer, she now works in diversity, equity, and inclusion. She is a native of Louisiana, raised in New Orleans, and currently lives in Harlem with her husband. The Thread Collectors is her first novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Welcome, Allison and Shauna. How are you both today? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Thank you so much for having us. I'm so glad you're both here, and I cannot wait to talk more about the Thread Collectors. So as we're diving in, why don't you give us a synopsis of what the Thread Collectors is about for those that won't have read it yet? This is Shauna, for those of you listening to know our voices. So in the Thread Collectors, you will meet two couples, one Black and one Jewish. And our Black couple is comprised of William. He has escaped from enslavement, and he is a brilliant musician, and he flees to join the Union Army. At the same time, his beloved Stella is making clandestine maps out of repurposed cloth and thread in order to help other enslaved men flee to join the Union Army. On the battlefields of Louisiana, William meets Jacob, our Jewish hero. He's also a brilliant musician. And it's the love of music that bonds those two men. Jacob has also left home his wife, Lily. She's living in New York City, and she is a fiery abolitionist. Lily also is spending her time sewing with her beloved quilting circle. They're all making quilts to support the Union cause. It's the friendship between Jacob and William that's forged on the battlefields of Louisiana that open us up into this story about how these four lives are intertwined and how we can find creativity and purpose in the darkest of times. How did you decide, I guess before I even do that, how did you all meet and then how did you decide to write together? 
Well, the way we met is sort of, um, it's a funny story. And again, this is Allison, just so you have a, a chance to identify our two voices. Uh, Sean and I met over a decade ago. It was actually 13 years ago and really, to me, one of the most unlikely of places for a writer to be, which was Las Vegas. I'm married to a corporate attorney, and in Shauna's former life, she was also a practicing a corporate attorney. And I had just potty trained my, my last child, and my husband had told me that, that he had received an invitation to a sort of an all-expense paid trip to Las Vegas for a corporate lawyer reception and you know event. And so I was online, sort of a fish out of water in the sea of all these attorneys at, uh, at the bar. And all these men um, with sharp elbows were sort of cutting in front of me trying to get a drink at the bar. And I was happy to let them go first because I was in no rush. And out of the crowd um, in the corner of the room, I saw this beautiful woman, you know, charging over to me who looked incensed at what she was witnessing, this sort of social injustice she was seeing and, and overall rudeness. And she came over to me and she said, why are you letting every single man cut in front of you for a drink? And <laughs> And then she said, obviously, you're not a, you know, an attorney, are you? And I said, um, no, I'm a writer. And her eyes sort of lit up and she shared with me that she had been a English literature major at college, that she loved to read, that she had her own book club, that she dreamt of writing a, you know, a novel at some point in her life. And so Sean and I, immediately, that instant spark between us was our mutual love of books. And then from every you know time we met thereafter, because we've become friends, you know, last longing friends, we always talked about books. And then you know we we've created the thread collectors together. I love that story. Well, so how long from when you first began talking about writing the thread collectors till holding the book in your hands did the whole process take? So we actually started thinking about the thread collectors in 2017. Um, I was privileged. All of a sudden, I was friends with an established author, which, as Allison mentioned, as a literature major, that was a dream come true. I've even dragooned her into coming to some of my book clubs. But every time I saw Allison, I would ask, what are you working on now? And she has taught me that a real author has five different ideas going at once. And when we were talking in 2017, she had just seen a PBS documentary by Rick Burns, Ken Burns' younger brother, called Death in the Civil War. And she was very struck by finding out about the role that African-American soldiers played in the Civil War. 180,000 Black men fought in the Civil War, but they were often forced to do menial, demeaning labor, bury the white soldiers. And that's something that is not necessarily as widely known as it should be. So we were speaking about this fact and how struck she had been by it. She also shared with me at the time that she had learned that often, because bodies had to be buried where they fell and regiments had to move on, loved ones would create maps so families could find fallen soldiers. And she started thinking about this loose idea about the friendship between a Black man and a white soldier and how the Black soldier might create a map. I'm not giving away any spoilers here, so I want all the, <laughs> the potential readers out there to know that. So she shared this idea she also has her own personal Civil War connection, which I'm not going to steal from her. I will let her tell the readers and the listeners a little bit more about that later on in the podcast. But as she was telling me this original thought, I was immediately intrigued. I am a Black woman that was raised in the South. I'm originally from Louisiana. And the Civil War has always felt very present to me. So I knew it was a really intriguing idea. And we started talking about ways that we might embellish the Black soldier story, specifically by including a love story for him 
and having his beloved create maps out of thread. But then we didn't do anything with the idea. You know, it's 2017. We're once again having a glass of wine. We're chatting as friends do. We hug, we say goodbye. And it wasn't until 2020 that we really started to write in earnest on the book. And then ultimately in 2021, we became finished with the Thread Collectors. I was curious because I've heard from people a number of times how hard it is to sell Civil War stories. So it's interesting to me that, and I think you have a different perspective as well, but it's interesting that your publisher was interested in this one and then you were able to move forward. And that's also interesting on the timing. Well, I think what was unique about from the Thread Collectors from the very start was that we were going to be examining the Civil War through two marginalized communities, one Jewish and one Black, and that Sean and I really wanted to bring our own family history and our our feelings about our own personal heritages to creating the novel. So you had two unique perspectives, two unique histories that were being drawn upon while creating the novel. And I, you know, think that the publisher, because we did sell the book on 40 pages in a proposal, has so, you know, shared our vision that this could be something really special and we could be offering something to readers, a unique way to sort of revisit the Civil War that I think typically in historical fiction does sometimes feel like it's perhaps almost too dusty that people don't want to go back to the Civil War. It doesn't have that sexy, glamorous feeling that you often feel when people are pitching World War II novels, you know, well, which is ironic to me, to me, because obviously we know World War II is hardly sexy or glamorous at all. It was absolutely devastating and horrific what happened. But, you know, from the marketing perspective, fighting Nazis in airplanes sometimes seems more easily to envision on the bestseller charts than a Civil War novel. I guess that's right. And I do think that you all have a unique perspective. And I think that makes it different. But I also think people are a little wary of the Civil War right now with everything happening in our country and how divided everybody is and all the different things that are happening. I think the Civil War makes publishers very anxious. I think that's fair, Cindy. But it is that division that was really the animating force behind Allison and I getting together. So I mentioned we spoke about this idea in 2017, but we didn't start putting pen to paper until 2020, when Allison reached out after the murder of George Floyd, and she really was being spurred to create something with intention. And she asked me, um, and this is my first novel, so I admit that this was taking a little bit of a leap of faith on on her part, if I wanted to create this book with her to explore these two underrepresented lenses. It was because we were going through such a terribly divisive time that we decided to put all of our time and our energy and our family histories behind it. And I think we were able to convince our publisher that we need more honesty and authenticity and bravery around these conversations. The Civil War, of course, was incredibly political. We're living in both a very political and politicized time right now. However, the simple act of reaching out and finding commonality, that's what we are hoping people will be able to do to kind of move past the politics and the politicization and just see how can I build a bridge. So in many ways, it was a scary time to write this book, but I also think it's the perfect time to write this book. I agree completely. I think the timing is wonderful. And I think that is probably George Floyd obviously is horrific. But I think that it is allowing some of these stories that maybe wouldn't have been told before to be told now. And I think I always say this about historical fiction. I think that and fiction itself, 
when you're putting people in a story where it's emotional and you're following particular characters and it's not just a history lesson, I think people gain empathy. They they learn to sympathize with the characters. I think they understand better the issues. So I think it's fabulous that you were able to publish this story. Thank you. And I think, you know, one of the things that we always were very intentional in, in doing and creating the novel was that we wanted to, you know, it to be a hopeful novel. That even though we were writing in a time where there was this very much a feeling of divide within our country, that we wanted to build something that, as Shauna mentioned, was building bridges and that ended on a, you know, a note of hope. Right. And helped people understand that there could be hope. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about the writing process. I am always completely fascinated when two people are writing together, how that works, and it's almost always different. So tell me what it looked like for you guys. So everyone assumes that I wrote the Black characters and Allison wrote the white characters, and then we got together and kind of smushed. I know smush is not a real word, but it's a word (laughs) that I use, that we smushed them together. But that was not the case at all. On our first writing day, we agreed that we wanted it to be a seamless voice because that was the whole point of the project, right? You have this Jewish woman and this Black woman coming together to tell a single story. So we decided to do third-person narrative. But how are we going to pull this off? Also, fun fact, I have a day job, which means that I don't have the luxury to write all day long in spite of the fact that I would love to do that. Every Sunday night, we're in the pandemic, right? Thank goodness we don't have a lot of places to go, even though we're missing out on connection in the world. We would get on the phone and we would just brainstorm what's going to happen with the next two to three chapters. And then Allison would take the broad path at what was going to happen. She's so artistic. She likes to describe it as a sculptural process. You know, she would lay down that wire armature, put that first layer of clay in, And then she would call me with the most exciting news ever and say, the Google Doc is up. And I would race to my computer and I would go to the Google Doc and then I would start embellishing it. And then we would just keep passing it back and forth between each other until we got the narrative, at least what we were working on, that section of chapters, as perfect as we thought it could be. And that doesn't mean that we didn't have to speak about things. You know, we would leave little notes in the margin. Can we discuss or does this seem in character or let's talk about this word? But it allowed us to both create at the same time from a technological perspective, but also ensure that we were going the same direction and we were using the same type of words and terminology. There are a few points in the book where understandably it may relate more to my heritage or history or Allison's heritage or history. And in that regard, we were like, I have to trust you right? This is about bringing our identities to the forefront. But for the most part, we were very much open to creating these characters in the story together. And I'm so glad that that is what we achieved. The best thing in the world is when my mother, who has read it, um, but she hasn't finished it in full disclosure, after football season, she will. She (laughs) said, I can't tell which parts you wrote and which parts Allison wrote. And I think for a mother to say that to a daughter is, that's that's pretty telling that we did what we wanted to set out to do. Absolutely. And it sounds like you really did write it together versus one person writing one chapter, one person writing the other, and then flipping who edits. Instead, you really went back and forth, filling in what you needed to. So it would be impossible to tell what you had written and what Allison had written. Right. And it becomes this beautiful metaphor of us, you know, blending our souls, our minds, our hearts to create this one uniform voice, which we had always, you know, set out to do to write this book. So it just, it felt that way. You know, it was wonderful. 
I love that metaphor. (laughs) Well, what did you do when you did have a conflict? Well, you know, I wouldn't use the word conflict. I think one of the things that Sean and I wanted to do right away was the ability to always be completely transparent with each other. I mean, we usually, you know, often tell a story during our more formal talks about how when we got together to see if we could write the first 40 pages, I was sort of trying to bear my heart and reflect on, you know, how I felt with all these, you know, the terrible headlines of George Floyd's brutal murder and what it, you know, felt like to to see, the, you know, your eyes peeled back of really what kind of racism is prevalent in our country. And I said to Shauna, in the most earnest way, I I was raised to be colorblind. And what I was trying to tell her is that, you know, I came from a family that was anti-racist, that, you know, believed in treating everyone, you know, as they wanted to be treated themselves. And Shauna said to me right from the very beginning, I can't write this book with you unless you see my color. And I guess what I realized at that moment is how one word to me could be heard so differently by another person, particularly if it's, you know, in reference to their own um, community. And so there would be times when we were writing the book and the Google Doc would be up and I might write something or she might write something. And we would use the tab to say, you know, can we just discuss this line? I, you know, meaning I wasn't hearing those words the same way you were hearing them. And can we discuss them to find something where we both feel that's the way we hear what's happening in the novel, right? I love also this other metaphor, like we wanted to hear the same music, right? We didn't want to have dissonance. And so it would be those conversations of, I don't see the character doing this because I, you know, it makes me feel this way or. I don't think this is the right word. I hear it this way. And for me, as a writer who's been doing this for, you know, almost, you know, 20 years, it made me even more sensitive to language and and more respectful of, you know, trying to imagine how that word could be heard by different people. So it, it was, it wasn't a conflict. It was an education. Okay. That's really fascinating. And I feel like exactly what you're describing is something that the country is hopefully slowly coming to terms with. Obviously, there are some terms that we all know not to use. And, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, people still use them sometimes. But I mean, a good number of people know these are not words to use. But I think there are times when something I say could be interpreted very differently to someone else, their background or whatever it is. And sometimes that is still such a learning process. And what a gift for you two to be able to go back and forth during all of this and have that kind of education with each other and understanding. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's been a wonderful experience that way, I think, to be able to have these, you know, brave conversations of saying, you know, instead of just pushing it over the rug, I mean, there have been many times in my life when someone might have said something that I felt was offensive, you know, anti-Semitic or something, and I didn't always call them out because I just felt like it wasn't the time or place and I wanted to move on. Not that I'm necessarily proud of not saying something, but in this case, I think Sean and I, we were so intent on creating something that we called our legacy project, that this book was going to be written in, you know, in a way that we were proud of you know, what we wrote on the page that would be there after we're long gone and people would be drawing empathy, as you said. You know, you're walking in the footsteps of four characters that are very different than yourself, but yet we all want to love. We all want to be able to choose the people that we love. We all want to protect our families. We all want freedom. And so you know, those are the root cores that we're trying to highlight, not the hatred, but this you know, these innate human desires and should be freedoms. Well, I think that's exactly right, because I think what happens is all of the differences are highlighted all of the time. So Mm -hmm. you look at the different groups of people, whoever they are, and think, okay, we don't share anything. But actually, 
humans do share all sorts of things. And so the focusing on what is shared in addition to what is not shared is very helpful. Yes. Absolutely. And one of the things that Allison and I were very clear about when we started this process is to allow the other person space to give their perspective, even if it wasn't about their own identity. This is how I hear it. Now tell me how you hear it. And sometimes I feel like we get stuck in making our point and giving our perspective that we don't leave enough time in the conversation to hear the other person's perspective. You know, Allison was vulnerable in talking about a moment in our writing process, so I'll share a similar moment for me. There is a point in the book where you see two brothers, the two Jewish brothers who are on opposite sides of the Civil War. One is join the one will join the Union Army and one will join the Confederate Army. And this is actually um, taken from Allison's family history. They have a conversation about enslavement over Passover. And I had suggested that the Southern brother talk about the economics of it. And Allison was really vulnerable with me in telling me that she didn't appreciate the fact that it could play into stereotypes about Jewish people and a fixation on economics. And it was something that I would not have considered. And rather than necessarily thinking like, well, this is what I meant and economics were important in the Civil War, I just had to learn to shut up and listen. And I think sometimes that's what we're missing a little bit, like just shut up and listen a little bit and know that there will be a time and a space for your perspective, but it doesn't have to be right now. And that's something that Allison and I have been able to do in our friendship and our co-author process. And we would love to just spread that around in our tinier circles and in our broader circles. That can be our new motto, shut up and listen. No, but I do like that. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make light of it. I just love that. We're just out there saying shut up and listen. And I'd be like, yes. I think sometimes I have found when I'm having a conversation like that, that maybe is a little difficult or I felt I was coming from one perspective and didn't necessarily understand how it was being perceived on the other side, that it sometimes takes me a little while too, that I have to kind of think about it and digest it and then usually almost always come around to the other side like I just never even thought about it, which is exactly what you're saying is that so many times people are not even thinking about these things. And just to have the benefit and the gift of each other and to have these types of conversations, I mean, I wish we could all do that. Right. It would be very helpful. Well, what about your family history, Allison, that played into the book? Well, you know, growing up, I had a wonderful close relationship with my grandmother. And on my grandmother's side, she sort of had a unique family history, particularly for um, a Jewish American family. Her family came over from Germany in the late 1830s. And I had two great, great, great uncles, according to my grandmother, who fought on opposite sides during the Civil War. When the family first emigrated, one of the older brothers eventually moved down south to a place called Satarsha, Mississippi, where he expanded his mercantile depot to be, you know, a quite large emporium, while his younger brother remained up north. And when the Civil War broke out, he enlisted as a musician in the 31st Regiment of New York. But the Southern um, brother registered, you know, enlisted in the Mississippi Regiment. And so, growing up, my grandmother used to say, you know, you have Southern relatives, but we lost contact with them after the Civil War. Um, The two brothers, once they made that decision to fight on opposite sides, it permanently divided the family forever. And so I was always, as a writer, that was always something floating in the back of my mind, that this would be a really interesting fraternal 
relationship to mine in a potential novel someday. I was fascinated by the fact that these were two brothers who were the you know sons of, of of immigrants themselves in a new country trying to you know have a new life, a better life, having fled religious persecution probably and anti-Semitism. I was really really curious of how a southern Jewish relative of mine would have felt about the you know about slavery. And so again I I kept on seeing that scene between the two brothers and as Shauna mentioned that we have that in the book take place during Passover when the Jewish tradition is to retell the story of of escaping bondage, escaping slavery in Egypt. So that was something I always wanted to draw upon and is, you know, inspired by a true family's, you know, story in my ancestral tree. It's so hard to imagine without the additional issues, but just the idea that brothers, which it happened a lot, ended Mm -hmm. up on opposite sides and that families then permanently split, never to be reunited. And on top of it, to add in the things you were talking about. Right. Yes. So, I mean, it was wonderful to be able to, because there's a lot of archives now available that you can, you know, find, for example, what regiment a a soldier was enlisted in. There was the Chappelle Foundation, which basically is an initiative to document every Jewish Civil War soldier who fought in the war, both Confederate and Union. And so, you know, there was also... We had um, newspaper archives about the house that my Southern uh, relative lived in and that the house had been occupied by General Grant during the Battle of Vicksburg and a description of the house and its history and its gardens. And all of that we used to sort of create, you know, local texture and color based on historical, you know, articles we could find. In addition to the personal family research, did you have to do a lot of other research as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that people express surprise by is how quickly we wrote the book. But I think this is a case where two heads were better than one, uh, particularly when it came to the research. And as I mentioned before, and as you are, Cindy, being a lawyer certainly helps, right? I don't get intimidated by the documents, even though this is my first time delving into the research for a historical novel. And obviously, Allison is a pro at this. So I used a lot of the resources that were available from Louisiana, the historic New Orleans collection. They were wonderful. And maybe it's because researchers wanted something to do in the pandemic as well. But they were wonderful when I reached out over email. They would point me to documents. I also used documents from the Schomburg, uh, which is part of the New York Public Library system, as well as the Amistad Research Center in in New Orleans. And the Amistad is a really important cultural touchstone because they make it their business to record history about everyday African-Americans in the U.S. And there aren't, unfortunately, still enough institutions that do that. We do have some depictions of the lives of free Black people of color in Louisiana, which was a thriving population that not many people are aware existed during the 1860s and, frankly, since the beginning of this country. But the Amistad was invaluable in terms of helping me understand where would they live? What would their homes look like? What kind of jobs would they have? All of these rich historical details, they are woven into the story. So the historical research was key to our process. And did you do all of the research before you started? Or as you were writing, were there times where you're like, okay, wait a minute, I don't think we fleshed this out enough. Or I wonder about what this particular thing would look like or what someone would say, and then you'd have to go and and research that additional piece of information. Well, you know, we did a significant amount of research when we were writing the proposal for the book, but there was a lot of research that we had to do in tandem of writing it. And I think, again, it sort of echoes what Shauna said, that we had 
you know, always two, you know, hands, two feet, two minds available. So if I was still working on a chapter that we had discussed plot wise, Shauna could be in the field going to, you know, Port Hudson to sort of go and see what that looked like and meet with the ranger there and learn more history, you know, work with her archivist that she, you know, worked with in, in, New Orleans. And so we, there was never a stopping of writing, but there was never necessarily a stopping of researching. So we were taking turns on both ends of that. And we had a deadline. This was because the book was was sold on proposal. We knew we had to finish at a certain time. And I think that put pressure on us not to ever stop, you know, putting gas on the pedal. <laughs> I think the hardest part for me would be if I were doing all of this is stopping the research. Because as you go down all these rabbit holes, you're learning all these really cool details many of which you know you're never going to be able to wrap into your book. But you're like, this is so cool. I want to learn more. And it must be hard sometimes to pull yourself back. Well, that's why it's good to have a writing partner. There were a couple of times, however, when we found interesting um, and sometimes tragic historical details that neither one of us had been aware of, where we decided to incorporate them into the plot in pretty significant ways. And that was cool as well, right? You stumble across something that almost as as if the narrative was waiting for that. Or you stumble across something that in Allison and I's case, we would call each other and say, did you know this? And if we didn't know it, we felt like we had a responsibility to put it in the book. Not to hit our readers over the head with history, you know, no one wants to feel like they're reading a textbook, but to really take the opportunity to illuminate some undiscovered things. For instance, we both had been aware of the draft riots in New York City in 1863, but neither one of us had been aware that there had been a really venerable colored children's asylum. It's an orphanage that housed a lot of people who had lost, a lot of children who had lost parents in the Civil War. Their dads were off fighting for the Union Army and for freedom. And during the draft riots, a mob tried to burn this orphanage to the ground with 233 children inside, Black children. I live in New York City. Allison lives right outside of New York City in New York State. And the fact that neither one of us had known about this historical episode, it basically demanded that we put it in the book. So there was plenty of history that we couldn't put in the book, but some things just called to us and almost said, like, we have to. Well, that's my favorite part of historical fiction, is learning those types of details, things that I didn't know, and often I'm so surprised I didn't know them, or that there hasn't been more light focused on them. So that's wonderful you were able to incorporate some of those things so people come away really invested in your characters, but also learning some new history. Yes, absolutely. And I think for as a writer, we're also so conscious of these things that we were not taught in the classroom or we didn't know and find them you know, either fascinating or horrifying or just illuminating in general in history and wanting to share that with our readers. So as you mentioned before, it never feels like you're getting a history lesson, but if you're walking in the footsteps of those characters, you're feeling and experiencing everything through their eyes. Well, and I think it can be handled two ways. It can be an info dump where, you know, four pages are suddenly devoted to something like this, or it can be woven into the story. And then you come away thinking that worked seamlessly. I've learned a lot, but I didn't feel like all of a sudden I was reading four pages about a riot. Right. And that's actually one of that's really interesting. You mentioned that because that was a conversation that I had with Shauna where I said, you know, we had discovered this part about the uh, asylum that she had mentioned being burned to the ground. And saying perhaps we should do that through Lily's letters, that it's being diffused through how she experienced that history and how she would retell that in a letter form to her beloved. So it doesn't feel didactic. It feels fresh and through the words of the character. Incorporated into the character's storyline itself. 
What do you hope your readers take away from the book? It would be amazing if our readers could go on a similar journey to the journey that Allison and I have gone on to, wanting to consider things that have happened in our past and also our present from a different perspective, feeling a little bit more open to having brave conversations, and and frankly, learning about our own family heritages and what that illuminates for us going forward. So if people could walk away from reading the book saying, I want to pick up the phone and call maybe a friend I don't know as well as I should that might see the world differently, I would be overjoyed. And I also think this, you know, one of the central themes to the Thread Collectors is unexpected friendship, you know, friendship when you're least expecting it, and also a commonality of a language that isn't necessarily a language of words. So for William and Jacob, for Lily and Stella, these friendships that are made that seem very unlikely and unexpected are ones that are built on a very strong foundation. And I think with the language of music, with our male characters, that this is something that cements their friendship. It's very much echoes how Sean and I, our friendship, you know, we met on in Las Vegas, which for me, I don't, you know, it's very unexpected that I'd be there, is this language of books that cemented our friendship, you know, in an unlikely place. So I think that's something that I'd also love for readers to be open to is finding friendship when you're least expecting and opening up your ears and your heart to learning more about that new friend. Well, and I think there's another layer there in today's world as well. I think after the pandemic and so many people were so isolated for a while, people really know they need community and it's important to have relationships and develop friendships. So hopefully, you know, you can kind of kill two birds with one stone there. Reach out to more people, people that have diverse views, different views than you do, but also just kind of continue to try to build people up and and build those relationships that everybody needs. Yes. Be a creator, not a destroyer, right? Like, so <laughs> I think it's wonderful to create a book and, um, you know, to have it have a sense of purpose. Absolutely. Well, what about coming up with the title and the cover? Mm, so the title... Allison and I, uh, once again, she's been so wonderful to me, guiding me through this process. But we came up probably with about 40 titles or so. It was really important to us that the title be as evocative of the men's friendship as it was of the women. And we all are big readers. We all go to bookstores. We all see that there are many titles that are really strongly about women. You know, there may be about sisterhood or something like that. But we we wanted something that was broader. And we finally came up with Thread Collectors. One fun fact is that our original title was The Blue Chords. Blue plays a very important aspect to our book. You know, it's a color of protection. It's also the color of the Union Army. And we were thinking the chords of friendship and the chords and the notes. But we wound up with the Thread Collectors and we absolutely love it. And I'll let Allison tell you about the image. So, you know, the publisher surprised us with the with the cover, uh, although they did ask us a few things before they had a period shoot where they had the actresses or the models, I guess you call them, dress up in in the outfits that are used on the on the cover. But I guess we imagine we I think originally were imagining something that had a battlefield or something or, you know, perhaps even union soldiers, not women. But publishers know much better how to market a book than authors typically. And so They wanted to highlight the female friendship of this aspect of the novel. And so when we got the novel, I mean, got the cover for the novel, we were pleasantly surprised by the the two women and and how their hands are connected by that beautiful red thread. Originally, the model that was supposed to, I think, evoke Lily was in a green dress. And it's because blue is such an important color 
that runs through the novel and has so much symbolism. We asked for that dress to be made blue instead of green. But other than that, we were really happy what they did. We loved the font they did. And then when we saw the the high relief silver foil they used on the the lettering, we were really super pleased too, because it made it especially fetching. I only have the e-galley of it, so I haven't even seen that in person. I need to track that down. Yeah, it's really pretty. Well, I've been on a rampage about women looking away in historical fiction. So I'm just always so happy when a cover does not have women just facing away. Yes, I'm happy too. (laughs) I know. And when when Shauna mentioned, well, why have they cropped off their heads? I said, you know, I think the publishers don't like to make a fixed you know, image of what they look like in in the reader's mind so that you can use your imagination. And I said, it's so much better than, you know, figures looking away and you're only seeing their back. At least you can see a little glimpse of something. Exactly. I don't know why that's been so bothersome to me, but I think one, because it's so overdone. But two, I'm like, okay, let's just do something different. So yes, it is nice. And it is kind of funny, Shauna, at first, I think when the heads are cropped off, because you're like, what happened? They've been beheaded. But I think it is because they want you to have your own idea and your own kind of vision of what the person looks like. Absolutely. Do you all plan to write another book together? Well, it's definitely our hope. I mean, we, um, you know, our our ending of The Thread Collectors, it definitely ends with a sense of hope, but also perhaps a new chapter. We, we wanted to evoke the sense that the journey is still continuing for our characters. And we imagine taking them into reconstruction Uh, We imagine seeing their progeny always being born with a musical gift to see how that plays against a different historical landscape, whether it's reconstruction, then perhaps going into Harlem Renaissance, civil rights. So we have a big vision for it. But at this point, we're, you know, just trying to get the word out there about the first one. Well, that makes sense. You've just gotten it out not that long ago. And in these days, there is so much happening in terms of publicity and traveling and online events and everything. So yes, just enjoy that first. Yes, that's what we're doing. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you both have read recently that you really liked. Shauna, do you want to start? Absolutely. Um, So I have recently finished something by an Afro-Caribbean author. Her name is Clavis Deterra, and she wrote Neruda on the Park. And I'm also revisiting a classic that I couldn't believe I hadn't read the first time around. It's by Walter Mosley, the venerable African-American kind of detective novelist. And I'm reading Black Betty. And so far, it is fabulous. I did not sleep last night, and I should have. That's always a sign of a really good book. And I just completed reading um, The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin, which I absolutely adored. The writing was spectacular, and I, I love the premise of the book. And I'm currently reading The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. I just absolutely loved Hamnet. I love her writing. She brings, you know, basically periods of history to life that are much older than the Civil War. Um, and so I'm just yeah, enjoying really good writing while I'm on tour with Shauna while we're in those airport lounges and on the plane. Well, I'm always so embarrassed to say, because I read so much historical fiction, that I have not read Maggie O'Farrell's latest, her historical fiction. I've read all of her earlier books, which are not historical, but I have not read Hamnet because I always worry it's going to be too sad. And then I just haven't gotten to the marriage portrait yet. Well, she's, I mean, she's a spectacular writer. I haven't read her earlier work. I've only, I started with Hamnet. So now you've made me curious, Cindy. I have to go to her backlist. I love This Must Be the Place. And I love I Am, I Am, I Am, which is a memoir that she wrote. So she's had a variety of wonderful books, but at some point I need to pick up these latest two. 
And Walter Mosley, Shauna, was sold at Murder by the Book when I used to work there all the time. All of his books are so popular, and I, I haven't read any of them, but I need to. Oh, you need to. They're wonderful. Pure escapism. Well, thank you both so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. It's been wonderful. Thanks, Cindy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Cindy. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.